Job 25 and 26 this afternoon. We're going to read both the chapters. Neither one of them is that long. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit came from you? The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? (coughs) So we have here in chapters 25 and 26 the last interchange between Job and his three friends. It's the third interchange between Bildad and Job. And there is no third interchange between Zophar and Job. And Bildad's speech here in chapter 25 is very short. And since there is no third speech of Zophar, I think it's becoming very clear that the friends have given up trying to persuade Job that he is wrong, that he has sinned, and that it is because of his sin that this affliction has come onto him. But Job's answer is very long, actually. We read only chapter 26, but Job's answer continues all the way through chapter 31, six chapters. But the answer of Job is divided into three different parts. The first part is 26, which we'll be looking at this afternoon. The second part is verses 27 and 28, and that's marked off from the first part by the first verse of 27. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, and the third part begins in chapter 29 and goes through 31 and is again marked off from the preceding by a comment. Job further continued his discourse and said, now, The difference between these three parts is that in chapter 26, Job is talking to Bildad and only Bildad. 
And that's clear from the singular use of the word you in, chap- in verses 2, 3, and 4 in chapter 26. How have you that is singular, you Bildad, helped him who is without power? When you get to chapter 27, uh, Job switches over to the plural form of that word you. You can see that in verse 5, for example, far be it from me that I should say you, plural, are right. So in chapter 26, he's talking to Bildad alone in chapters 27 and 28 to all three of the friends. And then in chapters 29 to 31, I think we have more of a soliloquy. It's not really addressed to uh, any of the friends any longer. Job is just meditating out loud in that part of his speech. So we're going to be looking at chapters 25 and 26. Now the speech of of Bildad is not only very short, but it's also very simple. The basic point of his speech is that it is impossible for man to be righteous before God. How then can man be righteous before God? Verse 4 Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? But we should notice on what grounds Bildad argues this point, that man cannot be righteous before God. The ground is found, first of all, in verses 2 and 3. And notice that he does not here talk about man's sinfulness. He talks instead about the greatness of God. Dominion, that is rule over all of the universe, and fear, that is trembling before him, belong to God. He makes peace in his high places, that is, He is the one who has power even to establish peace in the highest parts of his creation. There is no number of his armies. His hosts are without number, and the scriptures testify of this in other places as well. Upon whom does his light not shine? That is, his sun and moon and stars shine on all his earthly creatures. This is all about the greatness of God, and He argues then from the greatness of God that man cannot be righteous before him. And on the other side, he argues from the insignificance of man, not from the sinfulness of man. Verse 6, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. He's a very lowly creature then and he cannot be righteous before God. So the whole point which Bildad is making is God is great, man is insignificant, it is impossible for man to be righteous before God. Now that's a point which has been made before, and it's been made before especially by Eliphaz. Let's go back for a moment all the way to Eliphaz's first speech in chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. 
And this is in connection with that vision that Eliphaz talks about. But he heard a voice in that vision saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. And again, notice the emphasis on the insignificance of man. Not here on his sinfulness, but on his insignificance. He dwells in a house of clay. His foundation is in the dust. He's crushed before a moth. Again, in chapter 15, verses 14 to 16, this is Eliphaz again. What is man that he could be pure, and he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. So there he emphasizes both the insignificance of man, what is man, and he who is born of a woman, and the sinfulness of man. He is abominable and filthy and drinks iniquity like water. And then finally, in chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, this is again Eliphaz. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? So, Eliphaz and Bildad both talk about the greatness of God, but they talk about that greatness of God in the context of righteousness and the uh, sinfulness of man or the insignificance of man. And Job also has talked before about the greatness of God also. For example, chapter 9, this is probably the place where he talks about it um, most clearly. Chapter 9, verse 2, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Or, verses, or verse 15 in that chapter, For though I were righteous, I could not answer him, I would beg mercy of my judge. And then in verses 20 and 21, though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. But you see the difference, don't you? As you look at those different passages, uh, Eliphaz and Bildad are talking about how man cannot be righteous before God. Because God is simply too great, man too insignificant, and man too sinful. But Job says, man cannot be righteous before God because he can't contend with him. If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one out of a thousand. Job's idea here is not that then uh, he's sinful, but Job's idea is rather, it's impossible for man to 
approve and to establish his righteousness before God. He cannot contend with him. God, God's power overwhelms him and makes it impossible for him to argue his case effectively. Job says, I am righteous, and yet I can't contend with God in such a way as to establish my righteousness. His friends say, no, no one is righteous or can be righteous before him. Now there are those who have uh, interpreted the remarks of Job's friends as if they were actually denying the possibility even of justification before God. As if this argument between Job and his friends were an argument about the gospel and whether it was possible for a man in any way to be justified before God. And they would say, Job's friends denied even the possibility of justification, they denied really the gospel. And Job throughout is contending for the gospel. But that, I think, is wrong. And that's wrong because in several places, as we've seen, the friends called Job to repentance and promised that he will be blessed if he does repent of his sins. One place you find this is in chapter 22, verses 23 and following. This is Eliphaz again. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. So Eliphaz presents to Job the possibility of repentance and being blessed in the way of repentance. So the problem, I think, with the friends is not that they're denying the gospel, but that they are taking what is really true. A man cannot be righteous before God. God is too great and man too insignificant, man too sinful. And they are applying it in a very specific way to Job. You have sinned. You are too insignificant to establish your righteousness before God. You cannot be righteous unless you repent. They're saying to Job then, this, these manifestations of the power of God, and that's the implication of uh, Bildad 2 in chapter 25, these manifestations of the power of God apply to you and mean that you cannot be righteous before God. You are too sinful. Their, their basic point is right. No man is righteous enough in himself to stand before God. Any kind of attempt on the part of man to contend with God as Job wants to do will certainly fail. But, but taking this whole idea of the greatness of God and applying it to Job, saying, you have sinned, you have, re you have not repented of your sin, you cannot be justified in that way. And Job's answer to them is, I have not sinned. 
in these particular circumstances, in this particular setting, my suffering is not to be explained by my sin. I could, in these circumstances, in this particular setting, justify myself before God if the greatness and power of God would not overwhelm and terrify me to the extent that I cannot even speak. Now, I think we're going to see as we go on here that both are wrong. But the friends are making a fundamental mistake about God, which Job does not make. Turning then to chapter 26, we have Job's answer to Bildad. And what we've just been saying about Job is not part of this chapter. That comes later in Job's um, answer here, especially in chapter 27. But Job begins here in the first place by, as we've said, responding directly and only to Bildad. He's not talking to the rest of his friends in verses 2 to 4. How have you, singular, helped him who is without power. And what he does here then is he takes the accusation Job has made, or Bildad has made against him and he turns it back on Bildad. Bildad has said to Job, you have neglected your duties to the poor, you have oppressed the poor, you have uh, not taken care of the weak and so on. And Job says to him, well, what about you? How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? Whose spirit was speaking through you? You accuse me? of what you yourself are guilty of. And you give me, in my weakness, in my lack of strength, no help. I'm one of those for whom you have provided no help, no salvation, no counsel, or sound advice. I think it's even possible that Job sees some self-righteousness in Bildad and condemns his self-righteousness here. Now, if you look at the ESV uh, and, and its translation of verses 2 and 3, you will see that the ESV changes those uh, two verses to exclamations rather than questions. How you have helped him who is without power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. And the point, then, is really the same. It's a sarcastic remark. It's a a much more bitter kind of accusation of Job, then, if that's the way it's to be understood. You haven't done these things. How you have helped him, sarcastically, who has no strength. So he accuses Bildad. Basically, he's been driven to the point of frustration with his friends that makes him 
turn the accusations back against them, something we do rather commonly. But in verses 5 and following, the rest of the chapter, Job also focuses on the greatness of God. Bildad had talked about it very briefly. Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places and so on. Job also talks about the greatness of God. As we're looking at these verses 5 to 14, notice how many different parts of the creation Job talks about. He talks about Sheol, the grave. He talks about the earth, about the waters in the skies, about the clouds, about light and darkness, about the sea, about storms, and about heaven. All these different parts of the creation, and you can see how he, he kind of embraces all of the creation in these different uh, aspects of his talking about the power of God. And he says in all of these different parts of the creation, God manifests his power. God shows how great he is. The dead, basically um, verse 5, the dead who are buried at the bottom of the sea tremble before him. They are as far away from God as it is possible for anyone to be buried at the bottom of the sea and yet they tremble before God. Sheol and destruction are naked before him. That is, he knows them completely. There's nothing even in those places that is hidden from his eye. Destruction here, the word destruction is the Hebrew word abaddon. And it's found two more times in this speech of Job. First in chapter 28, verse 22 Destruction, or abaddon, and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. Notice it's associated there with death, just as it's associated with Sheol in 26. And again, in chapter 31, verse 12, Job references this, for that would be a fire that consumes to abaddon and would root out all my increase. You find it in two other places in the Old Testament. Psalm 88, verse 11. Psalm 88, verse 11. First of all, this is the psalm of, of great suffering. And it too makes reference to Abaddon. Abaddon is a terrible place in the Old Testament. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Our translation has the place of destruction, but it's Abaddon or your faithfulness in Abaddon. And then in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 11 as well. Proverbs 15, verse 11. And this is very similar to Job 26. Hell and destruction, or Sheol and destruction, are before the Lord. So how much more the hearts of the sons of men? That is, Solomon saying something very like Job is saying in chapter 26. The Lord sees everything that is in Sheol and Abaddon. 
There's one more reference to Abaddon in the scriptures. That's in Roman and Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. Revelation 9, verse 11, when John has the vision of the locusts from the bottomless pit. Then we read in that connection of the prince of that bottomless pit, the king of that bottomless pit. They had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. So John says, really this uh, Abaddon refers to the king of the bottomless pit. The Hebrew, the Hebrew language applies it to the bottomless pit itself. But it's a, a terrible place. It's a place of destruction. It's a place of judgment. And all of it is before the face of God. Nothing there is hidden from his eyes. In verse 7, Job says, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. That's rather a surprising description of the earth's place in the solar system and the universe, isn't it? We don't expect such sophisticated understanding of the uh, place of the earth in the solar system from the ancients. We think that such understanding belongs to modern times, but God hangs the earth on nothing. We would not be ashamed to talk about the earth in that way even today. Fourthly, he talks about the water that's bound up in the clouds. And there are immense amounts of water in the clouds, of course. We've seen that in some of the hurricanes over in this country over the past 20 years or so. Immense amounts of water. And yet God makes the clouds strong enough to hold those waters. Yet the clouds are not broken under it. He spreads his cloud over the face of his throne so that his throne is hidden from our sight. These great storm clouds which bring such violence and destruction to the earth reveal his glory, but at the same time conceal his throne from us so that we cannot see into heaven itself or see directly that glory and majesty of God. Verse 10 is a little bit more difficult. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. But I think what we should do here is imagine a man who's out at sea, uh, far from any land, and he can look 360 degrees around him and see nothing but water and see only a horizon at the edge of the waters. And that horizon forms for him the boundary of light and darkness. The New English translation puts it this way, he marks out the horizon on the surface of the waters as a boundary between light and darkness. Next, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. The heavens themselves tremble because the supports of heaven are being shaken by the sound of the voice of God, by the rebuke of God. And I think that rebuke of God is probably his thunder here. His thunder makes the heavens themselves shake. He stirs up the sea with his power. He causes the storms. And by his understanding, he breaks up the storm as well. That is, he dis 
dis- dissipates the storm and causes it to cease. By his spirit he adorned the heavens, that is, he placed all the stars in the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. The fleeing serpent here is a reference to the Leviathan, I believe, whom God himself describes later on in the book of Job as a very mighty uh, sea creature. This uh, fleeing serpent is mentioned also in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. So God does all these things, Job says. He sees into Sheol, the dead tremble before him, he hangs the earth on nothing, he binds up the waters and the clouds, He makes the boundary between light and darkness. He makes the heavens shake with his thunders. He creates storms on the sea and dissipates them again. He adorns the heaven. He pierces. He he kills the fleeing serpent. He's able to do all of these things. This is the great power of God revealed in his creation. And Job then concludes with this. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. We're only seeing, he says, as we talk about this immense power of God manifested in his creation, we're only seeing just the edge of his ways, just hearing a little whisper of him, barely comprehending the smallest part of his glory and his power. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? God's greatness is utterly incomprehensible to man. So both Job and Bildad speak of the greatness of God. Job knows about the greatness of God as much as Bildad does. And Job is able to give eloquent expression to that greatness of God in the same way that Bildad did. But I think there is, nevertheless, a key difference that you see here in the speech of Bildad compared with the speech of Job, and which also characterizes a difference between Job and his friends in general throughout their conversation. And that difference is this, that as Bildad contemplates the greatness of God, it it has applicability to man in this, and seemingly only in this, that man cannot be righteous before him. And when Job contemplates the greatness of God, Job comes to the conclusion God's ways are incomprehensible. Bildad basically says they're comprehensible. I see in the greatness of God the manifestation of his righteousness, the impossibility of man 
being justified before him, being righteous before him. Job says, as he contemplates the greatness of God, I don't understand God. And when we look back over the speeches of the friends and uh, what they have to say about the power of God, I think we see that same thing happening. Look at chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. I'm going to single out here just one example from each of the friends. Chapter 5, verses 8 to 11, here Eliphaz advises Job to seek God. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. And so he talks about that greatness of God, and he talks then about how that greatness of God frustrates the devices of the crafty and how it exalts those who are lowly. It's a matter of righteousness to Eliphaz. If you look now at chapter 8, verses 5, 3 and following, we have Bildad talking in this way. Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty, notice that word there, the Almighty, does he pervert justice? The power of God, the might of God means he's righteous to build that. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. And Zophar as well. Chapter 11, verses 7 and following. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea, a declaration of the greatness of God. But what does he do with it? Verse 10. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? So to the friends, the righteousness or the greatness of God means he's righteous. Man cannot be just before him. They have a very limited conception of the greatness of God, therefore. And this is, I think, what Job is addressing, really, in chapter 13, verses 7 to 9, when he says, Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out, or can you mock him as one mocks a man? But when Job talks about the power of God, he talks about that power of God in several different ways. He talks about that power of God very personally, first of all. He talks about that power of God as it applies to himself. His friends talk about it, not as it applies to themselves, but as it applies to Job. Job talks about it as it applies to himself. And he says, what does this power of God mean for me? Well, it crushes and overwhelms me. This is where his complaints about his suffering are coming from. And there are 
many passages we could refer to here. Job 6, verses 9 and 10, for example. Oh, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exalt. He would not spare. Or in uh, chapter 7, verse 14, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. In chapter 10, verse 17, also, chapter 10, verse 17, you renew your witness against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. The power of God is uh, uh, exercised against him in spite of Job's righteousness. In chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, but man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not wake nor be roused from their sleep. And it goes on this, Job goes on this way. The greatness of God crushes me. It overwhelms me. It does the same to man. That's one way he talks about it. Another way he talks about it is that this means that God is hidden from him and inaccessible to him. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Or in chapter 23, verses 8 and 9. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. God is hidden and inaccessible. Job, when he talks about the greatness of God, doesn't mention much about God's righteousness. He's not denying the righteousness of God. He's just saying, I can't see it. The friends say... We see these manifestations of power on God's part, and we see his righteousness. Job says, I see these manifestations of power, and I don't see his righteousness. I don't understand what he's doing. Look at chapter 16, verse 11. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. This is his complaint. Chapter 19, verse 6, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Or chapter 24, verse 12, The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. So Job says, I see the greatness of God too, but I don't comprehend his ways. I don't know what he's doing. This is my trouble. He has afflicted me. He has exercised his power against me. He has crushed me and overwhelmed me. He has terrified me. And I don't understand. The friends think they understand and fall short. Job knows that the ways of God are incomprehensible to us and that the being of God is hidden from us that his counsel and his wisdom and his purposes cannot be known by us. 
that we cannot even understand the righteousness of him and his ways. And that is why I think that in the rest, really in the rest of the book of Job, understanding and wisdom become key words. This is a question which comes down to how far can we know God? How far will our understandings carry us? How far can wisdom cope with the knowledge of God, with the greatness of God? That's why Job says at the end of chapter 26, the thunder of his power, who can understand? (coughs) Really, in a sense, the friends have been saying, we understand. It's his righteousness. It's his righteousness. And Job says, I don't understand. I don't know what he's doing. Wisdom, then, becomes the important question between Job and his friends from this point on. Who has wisdom? And ultimately, the answer is, neither one of you from God himself. You friends, you've spoken wrongly of me. Job, you've spoken rightly of me, but who are you to contend with me, to think that you, worm that you are, can stand in the righteous judgment of God and justify yourself, if only his power and his majesty would not overwhelm and terrify you into confusion and silence. Wisdom is with God. May God bless you with his word.